Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 9, beginning with verse 15. This is an unusual sermon for me to preach. I'm normally locked in to expository teaching through a particular book of the Scripture, but I felt it important to make a detour, so to speak, at this critical time in our nation's history. I'm not a highly political person. You would never hear me endorse, for example, a political candidate from the pulpit. I do not think that should be done. I think that it's fully appropriate for us to deal with the moral and ethical uh, and biblical issues that are before us in an election, but without personalities becoming involved. But on the other hand, I'm afraid that we are so concerned about being politically incorrect that the church of the Lord Jesus in our nation today is losing its prophetic voice. And again and again, we find in the Holy Scriptures the bold prophets of Old Testament times rebuking a nation for its sins and calling it to repentance and warning those nations of the judgment of God that will befall them if they do not repent. And we find that clarion call in Psalm 9. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the psalmist writes, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. In his book, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens tells of Ebenezer Scrooge's terrifying nightmare in which he's confronted by a specter called the Ghost of Christmas Future. And this ghost whisks him through time where he watches a funeral where no one mourns for the dead. And in fact, those who are around speak of the deceased in the cruelest and most irreverent ways. Finally, the ghost takes Scrooge to a cemetery and forces him to look down at the tombstone over a particular grave that clearly belonged to the man whose funeral they had just attended. And to his horror, Scrooge is able to barely make out in the dim moonlight, in the dense fog, his own name Ebenezer Scrooge, and he recognizes that if he does not change his ways, this will be his fate. Well, this morning, I want us to take a trip with another holiday ghost, so to speak, a specter that we could call the ghost of Independence Day future. As this ghost 
reaches out his icy hand, he whisks us through the streets of Washington, D.C. on some July 4th in the not-so-distant future. But as we make our way through those streets, we are puzzled to find that there are no flags waving from their staff. There are no bands striking up the star-spangled banner. There are no fireworks lighting up the sky with their brilliant red, white, and blue burst of flame. All we hear is an eerie silence as we make our way to a cemetery where the Spanish moss covers dead trees, where the graves are unkempt, covered with weeds and an occasional piece of trash, and the ghost forces us to peer down at a terribly cared for tombstone where we read to our sheer terror these words, the United States of America with the epitaph, the wicked go down to the grave and all the nations that forget God. Amen. Now, could this be our destiny? Could this be the future that awaits us? I'm afraid that it is. And the danger that I see before us is not from some missile that is hurled against us from enemy soil. It's not by some strategy devised from some former Kremlin official or some madman in the Middle East. No, we have met the enemy, and they are us. We are a nation that has turned its back on God. We have sought to drive God from our government, from our institutions, and in the name of liberty, the true giver of liberty has been cast aside. And if we do not repent as a nation of this terrible sin, the stars and stripes will drape the casket of a once powerful nation. This chilling warning doesn't come to us just from some imaginary specter. Oh no, this warning comes to us from the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Holy Scripture warns us that if a nation forgets the true God, the nightmare that I have just described will become a reality. And when the psalmist describes nations that have forgotten God, the implication is that at one time they knew him, right? And there was certainly a time when the vast majority of people in the United States knew the God of Scripture. And the traces of this are all around us. The vestiges of the faith of our forefathers are still present even today. For example, when we look on our coins, we see the motto, in God we trust. When we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, we are reminding ourselves that we are one nation under God. 
We are celebrating Independence Day this week, which is the anniversary of July 4th, 1776, in which the Declaration of Independence was accepted in its final form. Don't forget that the Declaration of Independence contains not one, not two, not three, but four references to God. In the very first paragraph, the founders argued that they were entitled to freedom by the laws of nature and of nature's God. Similarly, in the second paragraph, we find the self-evident truth that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. In the final paragraph, the founders justified their actions against Great Britain by an appeal to the supreme judge of the world. And in the final sentence of the declaration, they closed with these immortal words. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The point is that yes, the Declaration of Independence is a declaration of independence from Great Britain, but it's also a declaration of dependence on Almighty God who is the giver of true liberty. And how far we have drifted from these noble beginnings. In the last 70 years, the courts of our land have wrested the Constitution from its original context and intention. They have ignored the purposes of the founding fathers, the authors of the Constitution, and they have sought not only to completely separate church and state, but even God and government. Back like in 1965, in the case Reed versus Van Hoven, a U.S. District Court declared that it was unconstitutional, illegal, for a student praying over his lunch in a public school cafeteria to pray aloud. 1969, in the case Lowe versus the city of Eugene, a court determined that it was unconstitutional for a war memorial to be erected in the shape of a cross. In 1970, in the case uh, related to the Board of Education in Netcong, New Jersey, there was a shocking ruling. The Board of Education had decided that the best way to maintain Christian student devotions was to allow the students to gather voluntarily in the gymnasium before official school hours. Even then, they were not to read from the Holy Scripture and they were not to pray aloud. Instead, they were simply to read the remarks of the chaplain of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate made on the floor of Congress. And shockingly, the state Supreme Court declared these devotionals unconstitutional, and they ruled, quote, reading from the congressional record may be an unconstitutional infringement upon the F First Amendment. 
a ruling that was allowed to stand by the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1980, in the case Stone versus Graham, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to post the Ten Commandments in the halls of a public school. They argued, quote, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, and perhaps venerate and obey these commandments. This is not a permissible state objective under the Establishment Clause. Uh, we cannot allow a student to read, thou shalt not kill, because they might obey that commandment. And then we wonder why in the world our schools have become war zones and we have to have metal detectors installed at the school entrances and police patrolling every hallway. June 26 of 2002, the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the words one nation under God in our Pledge of Allegiance are unconstitutional and a clear breach of the Establishment Clause. I could go on and on. You get the point. We, as a nation, have forgotten Almighty God. How is it that a nation with such a rich Christian heritage can drift so fast and so far? How is it that we forgot God? Well, the psalmist explains the reason in verse 20. He says, strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. The psalmist is saying we forget who God is when we forget who really, really are. When the psalmist says, remind them that they're only men, the implication is that human beings have begun to deify themselves. They've begun to worship themselves. They have begun to exalt themselves above the Almighty God. They've begun to view themselves as superhuman, as divine. The worship of the true God is called theism, and its purest expression is the Christian faith. The worship of human beings is called humanism, and humanism is typically associated with relativism, the idea that anybody can decide for themselves what's right, what's wrong, there are no moral absolutes, and typically with atheism, the idea that there is no being higher than human beings ourselves. And I would argue that we've done exactly what the psalmist describes here. We have forgotten that we're only men, we have deified ourselves, and we have made secular humanism the dominant religion in government in the United States today. And this happened by the essential rewriting of our Constitution by liberal Supreme Court justices who were imposing their own ideas upon the Bill of Rights rather than seeking to interpret it as the founders intended it to be interpreted. Consequently, the Supreme Court has attempted to remove all traces 
of religion, especially Christianity, from government-funded programs, and especially from our public schools. But of course, they have not been and cannot be successful in that. You say, what do you mean they cannot remove religion from our public schools? Well, they haven't. What they have done instead of removing religion from our public schools is simply replaced one religion with another. They replaced Christian theism with secular humanism. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, all of us know that if you're teaching in a public school in the United States today, you are at complete liberty to teach that the universe originated through unguided influences as pre-existing matter spontaneously came together and ultimately led to all that we see around us today. Pre-existing matter spontaneously generating all that exists, the view of atheistic humanism. But what you cannot dare teach is that there is an all-powerful God who wisely and beautifully created this universe and we have an obligation to submit to his authority and obey him. Similarly, you cannot stand in a public school classroom today and teach that our creator God has intended that there be one and only one ordained means of sexual expression, and that is within a monogamous, heterosexual relationship that we call marriage, of course. But what you can teach, uh, for example, in the Get Real sex curriculum taught to 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, is a curriculum that normalizes sexual activity among underage children that presents as normal sodomy, homosexuality, transsexuality, and polyamory, the idea of open sexual relationships, open marriage. So I'm back to my point. We have not removed religion from government and government institutions. We have simply replaced one religion with another. We have forsaken Christian theism and we have replaced it with secular humanism. And in the process, we have rejected the faith of the vast majority of American citizens with the faith of only a very small minority of American citizens, and we dared to call that democracy. Was this what the Founding Fathers intended? The creation of an atheistic republic? Absolutely not. Contrary to all popular opinion, that well-worn phrase, separation of church and state, does not appear in any of the organic 
documents of the founding of the United States. It's actually from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist, but even that has been grossly removed from its context and misinterpreted. Instead, the First Amendment of the Constitution is, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the idea is you can't require all American citizens to adopt a particular religion and you can't deny any person the freedom of embracing the religion that they choose themselves. But when we look at this amendment in its original context, what we discover is that the intention of the founders was simply to prevent the establishment of a national denomination in America like they had known in Great Britain with the Church of England. They didn't want a particular denomination to be established that would persecute all others who held different theological views. The founders did not want people of one Christian group persecuting and oppressing those of other Christian groups. They wanted America to be Christian without having a state-sponsored church or denomination. And we don't have to guess that this was their intention. There's abundant evidence to support that. For example, we can go back and read the annals of the first Congress and read the notes from the discussions of the congressmen as they discussed the nomenclature of that First Amendment on the floor of the House and Senate. And what we find is that one congressman suggested this wording, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination of religion in preference to another. Another suggested the wording religious sect or society. Another suggested the nomenclature articles of faith or a mode of worship because these were the things that distinguished the various denominations. Finally, they just decided on the generic term for simplicity's sake, religion, that they were talking about Christian denominations as the historical context makes clear. Another evidence of this is the fact that this First Amendment appears in what we call the Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights were intended to protect the rights of states, to encourage the states to ratify the Constitution. What were the views of the different states in America at that time regarding religious liberty? Did they intend to make the United States of America an atheistic republic, a secular humanist democracy? Well, the state constitution of Delaware from 1776 required candidates for office to take this oath. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forever. And I do acknowledge that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are given by divine inspiration. 
The state constitution of North Carolina, 1776, required candidates for political office to make this confession. Article 32 said, no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority either of the Old or New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil government within this state. You couldn't hold office if you were an atheist. You couldn't hold an office if you denied the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. And in fact, they said that you have to affirm the truth of the Protestant religion. Now, that tells us how the word religion's being re used at this time in the United States, right? What's Protestant religion? It's Protestant Christianity. Third... The intent of the First Amendment is made clear by references to the First Amendment principle in the writings of important founding fathers. For example, Joseph Story was a Supreme Court justice who was appointed by James Madison. James Madison, of course, is known as the chief architect of the Constitution. And Joseph Story wrote concerning the First Amendment. We are not to attribute this prohibition of a national religious establishment to an indifference to religion in general, and especially to Christianity, which none could hold in more reverence than the framers of the Constitution. Probably at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and of the amendment to it, the general, if not universal, sentiment in America was that Christianity ought to receive encouragement from the state and attempt to level all religions and to make it a matter of state policy to hold in utter indifference all would have created universal disapprobation if not universal indignation. What he's saying is the revolution would never have happened. If the people of the American colonies had any suspicion that the goal was to create a humanist or an atheistic state. 1853, Congress was asked to press for an absolute separation of church and state based on the First Amendment. And so they appointed some special investigative committees, both for the House and for the Senate, to research the original historical context and intention of the founders when they composed the amendment. The report of the Senate concluded with these words, we are a Christian people. And in a land that is universally Christian, what is to be expected, what desired, but that we shall pay a due regard to Christianity. House report concluded, had the people during the revolution a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, the revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, 
the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, though not any one Christian sect. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. And the final resolution passed by the House in 1853 said, the great vital and conservative element in our system of government is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people say you can't hold these views and and be a, a loyal Baptist. Well, Article 17 of the Baptist Faith and Message says that as the state seeks to protect the freedom of the church, quote, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. What are they doing here? They're explaining to us the intention of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. And they're reminding us that that was about freedom to choose between Christian denominations in a government that was supportive of Christian convictions and Christian morality that it was never the intention of the founding fathers to war against the Christian faith or to expel the Christian faith from government and its institutions. Did the founding fathers intend for the First Amendment to remove the Christian faith from our schools? On the contrary, one of the most important acts of that very first Congress that adopted the First Amendment was to subject the territories of the U.S. that desired to become states to the Northwest Ordinance. And the Northwest Ordinance declared that schools, public schools, should be established throughout these territories for the purpose of teaching religion, by which they meant the Christian faith in context, morality, by which they meant biblical morality, and knowledge. Why? Because these were, quote, necessary to good government and to the happiness of mankind. And did the founding fathers intend for the First Amendment to strip the Ten Commandments from the walls and halls of our public schools? Well, these are the words of James Madison, the chief architect of the Constitution and the First Amendment. He said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of this government, far from it. We have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. So don't let anyone convince you that it was the intention of the Founding Fathers that we become a humanist, a secular, or an atheistic government. Absolutely not. This is the agenda of sinful people, rejecting the authority of the Creator. 
and revising history in order to accomplish their goals. And the psalmist warns us that there are two penalties that will be faced by the nation that rejects God and forgets God. First of all, he says that nation will be trapped by its own devices. He says that nation will be like a trapper that goes out and digs a deep pit in the ground and then drives inverted sharpened stakes in the bottom of that pit, hoping that some animal will come along and stumble into the pit and impale itself on those sharp stakes. But to his shock, the trapper stumbles into the pit and impales himself on those sharp stakes. He utterly destroys himself by his own devices. And the point that the psalmist is making is that our clever plans to get rid of the true God and enthrone ourselves as deities will always, always backfire and produce catastrophic consequences. And we're seeing that unfold in our culture right now, aren't we? Look at what we have become. One out of every five women in the United States has been a victim of rape or attempted rape, 20%. We've become a society of barbarians where it is no longer safe for women to walk the streets. 81% of women who work outside of the home report that they have been Victims of sexual harassment at work, unwanted sexual pressures, and so forth. The sexual revolution has eroded the morals of our nation at a shocking rate. I'm not a naive person. I think I'm pretty savvy about what goes on in our culture, but I will confess to you, I didn't see the last five years coming. I'm stunned at the insanity of some of the so-called moral reasoning, reasoning of the citizens of our country. We no longer can even distinguish between men and women. We think we have to have a social scientist or a biologist to make that call for us. It's well been said that if God's judgment does not befall this nation, for its heinous sexual immorality, he will owe an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I will say, hold on, God will never owe an apology to anybody, but they've made a good point. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for far less than what I see going on in our culture today with the drag queen story time hours in our public libraries, the gay pride marches in our streets with their nudity and perversion and so forth. And it's not just sexual morality that we've lost. We've all, all human decency. And the streets of our cities have become playgrounds for rioters, murderers, arsonists, and vandals. And, and we've watched it unfold on our television screens. 
in such overwhelming numbers that nobody even knew how to respond. We have gone from being Mayberry to being Gotham City in a decade. We've gone from seeing no need to lock our doors at night to feeling compelled to have iron bar security cameras and concealed weapons everywhere. 2021 saw the largest increase in our nation's history in violent crime. And in the early months of 2022, it looked like 22 would exceed 21. We still don't know because all of the statistical data is not in yet. We do know some things. The Family Research Council has been tracking the number of attacks on churches in recent years. And we saw a huge upsurge in church attacks in 2022, and that number continues to escalate in 23. In the first three months of 2023 alone, there were 69 attacks on churches in the United States. And it may surprise you to know that the largest number of those was in our own North Carolina. Here's the point. Some wanted to turn the United States of America into a nation that was no longer under God, and they largely succeeded. And we are suffering the consequences. We are paying the price. The psalmist warns that the nation that forgets God will be destroyed by its rebellion. Verse 19 refers to a day when the Lord will rise up in judgment and all the nations will be judged before him and he will strike them with utter terror as he unleashes his wrath for all of their rebellion and sin. Prophet Isaiah said a similar thing in Isaiah 60, verse 12. He said, for the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish it will be utterly ruined. And we could add to the words of the psalmist and the words of the prophet Isaiah, the words of one of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath. And Jefferson added, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. God's justice won't sleep forever, so we better wake up. We desperately need to repent. What can we do to avert the judgment of God on our nation? I'm going to give several practical applications here. Number one, we need to remember God by Christian political leaders remembering who they are. We have plenty of Christian politicians, what we need are more Christian statesmen who will recognize their positions of authority and influence as sacred trust, 
who want cower before pressure to renounce their faith or silence their convictions to escape persecution, who will exercise every ounce of their power and authority to restore Christian principles and convictions in our government and institutions. Second, we need to remember God by remembering who we are when we step into the voting booth. Because too many forget their Christian convictions when they punch the card. And they vote for people who are actually going to undermine in our nation the things that are most precious to us. We need to be well informed of the positions of the candidates in our elections, and we need to be very intentional about only selecting and supporting those who share our Christian views. We need, for example, to make sure that we elect conservative Christian presidents because it's the presidents who appoint the Supreme Court justices. And it is mainly through the Supreme Court that our religious liberties have been under assault for the last 70 years. I thank God that we had some recent uh, appointments of conservative Supreme Court justices who were originalists, which means that they want to interpret the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in light of the intention of the founders, the original historical context. And that, for example, made all the difference in the world in the Dobbs case that ruled that Roe versus Wade was unconstitutional. Duh! That should have been so obvious all along. There is clearly no right to abortion in the 14th Amendment, but that was the ridiculous argument that was made by liberal Supreme Court justices decades ago, and millions and millions of babies have been slaughtered as a result. In the Kennedy case, the Supreme Court recently ruled that a school district violated the constitutional rights of a coach who had the courage to kneel at the 50-yard line after each game and pray a quiet prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. And fortunately, they protected the religious liberties of this Christian coach. Humanly speaking, those decisions would not have been made if a conservative president who was appointing conservative originalist Supreme Court justices had not been elected. In other words, elections have consequences, and we need to carefully consider those when we step into the voting booth. Third, we need to recognize that true patriotism involves commitment to those convictions and principles held by those who birthed this nation. In other words, I, I do believe that if we want to be good American citizens, that we need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as God's Savior and King right now. And I'm not the only one who has that convention. George Washington, commander-in-chief, challenged his troops on May 2nd, 1778 at Valley Forge with these words. He said, to the distinguished character of patriot, 
It should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. I want to be very clear about this last point. If we want spiritual awakening in the United States of America, although what I have just described is very, very important, it is not sufficient. Why? Because if we change the laws of men without changing the hearts of men, we've not arrived at any true and lasting solution. And there's only one thing that can change the hearts of sinners, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truest patriot is also the most faithful evangelist who recognizes that we're going to change this nation one soul at a time as we explain to them that we're all sinners that we all deserve the judgment of God, that we are utterly hopeless to do anything to save or redeem ourselves, but that God loves us so much. He came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, lived for us the sinless, perfect life we can't live, and then went to the cross to be punished for our sins in our place so that we do not have to be punished. And he offers us forgive our sins, to spare us from the Father's wrath. He offers to completely and radically transform our lives for the glory of God by the power of His Holy Spirit. And we receive all those benefits through simple faith in Jesus Christ as our God, our Savior, and our King. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says in Article 15, means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we have too often resorted to political means to accomplish what can only be fulfilled through spiritual means. So yes, vote with your Christian convictions. Consider running for office, and it doesn't have to be the highest in the land. A Christian on a school board or a city council can have a profound impact on his community, and not enough of us are even trying. But more important than any of that is to faithfully share the gospel of our Lord Jesus with our family members and our friends and our neighbors. Even more important than that is to be on our knees in prayer daily, pleading for the souls of the citizens of our nation. And that is what will bring about awakening. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you like to do what Washington urged? Would you like to add to the distinguished character of the patriot, the more distinguished character, Christian? 
You can do that right now by confessing faith in Jesus as the Son of God, God in human form, as the one and only Savior of sinners who died on the cross for your sins in your place, and as the King, the King of all, the King of the universe, the King of heaven and of earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Christ alone for your salvation. Submit to his authority over the way that you live and worship him as almighty God. And when you make that confession, you'll receive that gift of forgiveness. He will change your life for the better and he'll make you a positive difference in the lives of others. If that's your commitment in a few minutes when we sing together, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Tell me that you want to become a Christian today, and we can tell you what the next steps are. No one will embarrass you in any way, but we don't want you to leave this place without the hope that only Jesus Christ can give. And many of us in this room have been Christians for a long, long time, but we've not always acted like it. Sometimes we've been silent when we should have spoken up. Sometimes we didn't take the stands that we needed to. And now we recognize that we bear some guilt in what our nation has become. And we're seeing the liberty to speak up slip away from us day by day, just a little bit more. What I ask you to do is speak up. Speak up in your prayers to the Lord. Speak up kindly and compassionately, yes, but boldly, courageously too. Speak up. Let your voice be heard. Tell the truth, even when telling the truth is difficult and unpopular. And most of all, share the gospel the only hope for our nation. Dear Father, we commit this invitation to you. We repent of our role and the demise of this great country. We pray that you will forgive us, and that you will help us now to be bolder witnesses, more faithful prayer warriors, more conscientious, about our roles and responsibilities in our communities. And Lord, I pray that you will move sinners to repentance of sin and the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is necessary for salvation. And that you would give those who commit their lives to Christ the boldness to come forward publicly now. In Jesus' name, amen.